all for us. Now, we're in the middle of a series, if you've been here, you know, about ancient paths. And this is really just a metaphor on kind of taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 16, where the prophet writes these words. He writes, I'm not going to have anybody to blame it on if the slides are wrong today. Trouble, Miss Linda. All right, the, the, the prophet writes, This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Now, what we've talked about is that these ancient paths, trying to get back to the important things, right? The things that, that, that matter. I mean, all of us look at the world and we can see that something's just not right. You know, um, we, we're reminded of the, um, of the saying from the novel that was really, really uh, famous that... that of mice and men, what is it that oftentimes things go what? They go awry. Things are off. We see that in people. We see it in the world. We see it in ourselves. And so how do we get back to the, to the ancient path, the, the biblical values that, that we know made this country great and have been very helpful to the world, the good ways, the right ways, God's ways, God's ways for living. So the whole series that we've been talking about for the last three weeks is how do we get back to God's ways for living? Now, just a quick recap. Um, there we go. The first three, work, sacrifice, integrity. If you want to hear the whole sermon on those, I did a sermon on each one of those. But those are things that make the world better. Well, we're going to look today at the fourth part of what I'm going to call the ancient path. And that's really that something that's missing today. And it's this idea of wonder. Now, I didn't even really know when I planned this, the song they were going to be doing, God of Wonders. But I love that song because it reminds us of the majesty and the, the awesomeness and the bigness of this universe and all the different things. And any of you who've ever paid attention um, to the natural world know that there's so many wonderful, amazing things about that. And so when we think about wonder, it's one of the things that we should strive to find if we want to get back to the ancient path. Now, let's, before we get all into that, let's look at what the, the dictionary tells us wonder is, because I think it's going to help us and help you understand what I'm talking about. First thing it says, one of the definitions is the quality of exciting or amazed admiration. Now think about how desensitized we've gotten in the world today. Fewer and fewer things cause us to be excited or have amazement and admiration. As we've grown in our scientific understanding and as we understand things, we, we don't have the same sense of awe and wonder that people in the ancient world had. All right? Heightened attention or astonishment at something awesomely mysterious or new to one's experience. Think about how many people have lost the sense of wonder and mystery about everything in their life. They take everything for granted. Because what? We have everything at our fingertips. You know, for those of you who can go back to remember when you actually had to have a map. You know, maps is, is obsolete now. You know, or... Do any of you remember having a set of encyclopedias? Did any, how many, raise your hand if you had a set of encyclopedias in your house. We had some at our house, and it was, it was an important deal. My, I mean, we, we had a, on the bottom shelf, okay, it was the World Book Encyclopedia. I remember when the guy came and sold it, you know, uh, to my parents, okay? And so, so it was down there, and if you had something from school or if you just wanted to know something, some of you are like, no, they got passed down. Somebody bought them and th regretted their purchase and gave them to me. But uh, so... But you actually, if you wanted to know something, you either had to go to a library or you had to look it up in an encyclopedia. 
You don't have to do that anymore because everything is right there on your finger, at your fingertips. If you want to go to the grocery store, you just do what? You can go online. You could go on your phone right now and put what you want from Super One, and by the time church is out, what will they do? They could have it there for you to pick up. So what's happened is the world has gotten so much smaller in that sense that people don't have as much openness to mystery and wonder and the things that are going on. Now, part of wonder is a feeling of doubt or uncertainty, not understanding. See, people today are so full of pride and self-assuredness that they don't have any doubt or uncertainty about things, or they don't claim to, but then ultimately when it comes to the things that matter, they're full of doubt and uncertainty, but they don't want to let anyone know. So wonder is by nature something that was a part of the ancient world because it was a pre-scientific time. Now, that doesn't mean that science and technology and all that is bad. Don't hear me say that. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But wonder is something that opens up opportunities for us to understand a few things. And if you think about it, think of your own perspective. It's really more about perspective. When you see a child, a newborn baby, you see this child and you can see lots of things. You can see all of the stress that's fixing to happen in your life. You can see all the responsibilities. You can see and imagine the sleepless nights. You could think about lots of things and those would all be true. But you could also see their little hands and all their little fingerprints and you could see the features of their face and you could see how this love and this innocence and this beauty and this stuff is so wonderful. It's all in what you're looking for. What are you looking for? And if you have a sense of wonder, your mind is open to lots of things that God can do. But if your mind's not open, you miss probably what is the most important thing. And so we're going to look at this idea of wonder today. And probably the best example of someone who experiences the wonder of God, not that it's the only one by any means, but is found in the calling of the prophet Isaiah. Some of you may know the prophet Isaiah. He was one of the major prophets. And he had a very unique experience in his life that's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. And in that experience that's recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, I want to read this to you. Basically, um, Isaiah was a, was a prophet. He was of the upper class, and he was called by God to be a prophet to those who were kind of in power in Jerusalem during some very difficult times. And he has this very unique experience that's recorded for us, and I want us to look today at these eight verses as we get a picture, a grasp of some of the things that wonder will help us. It says in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth, whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah has this vision. We're not certain if he literally experiences this. It's probably more likely that he has a vision, but it makes it just its no less real because it's a vision. But he has a vision, and in this vision, he experiences the wonder and the amazement of who God is. And look, notice a few things about this. So in this experience, he sees God, and God is on this throne, and he's high and exalted 
which is very, I would say, appropriate for where Isaiah is. Isaiah lives in a world where the king and the throne and all of this stuff is very, very important. And so he sees, first off, that God is high and exalted. He's seated on the throne. And there's very something interesting. It says, in the train of his robe. Now, we don't really have robes with trains other than we have a train on those bridal dresses. You know when someone gets married and they have a train that follows them? And that train is coming behind them as they walk down the aisle, the train, if you will, of that dress. Notice here what Isaiah sees in this vision is that the train of God's robe is so big that it, it, it fills the entire temple. Now, if you don't completely understand what God is trying to say to these people here is the ancient Israelites had kind of gotten lost in the fact that thinking God was just at the temple and that the temple was where God stayed. And Isaiah is revealed to him in this vision that God is way bigger than just the temple. I mean, just the little train of his robe is bigger than the temple. And it's completely overflowing out of the temple. So God's not limited to just the temple. And there are these heavenly beings in this vision who are around God and they were, were described in other places, but they're otherworldly. They're not of this world, but they are continually giving praise and honor to God. And so there's this very, very awesome, wonderful, mysterious experiencing happen here that Isaiah has this vision of. Now, these otherworldly beings, these seraphim, are saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And we know holy, holy, holy is kind of a religious word for us, but in their day it wasn't just religious. It was really more like completely different. What they're saying here is God is, is wholly different. He's not one of us. He's not like us. In some small ways we're like him, but he is nothing, nothing like us. He is greater. The whole entire earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the servants, not God's voice, the servant voices, at the sound of their voice, what happens? The whole foundations are trembling. So again, he's using this language here to help us understand. It's not just God's voice. You can't even hear God's voice. You don't want to see God's face. No, no. It's even his servant's voice is so majestic and so awesome and so powerful that the doorposts of the temple are shaking. And then, of course, the idea of smoke, mystery, all these things like this. So there's this experience that Isaiah is trying to convey as to how he comes to this calling in his life. And I think for us what it does, it will help us look today at something that I believe is universal. See, a sense of wonder helps any, each, of us, each of us to see what Isaiah saw here, and that's this. The greatness of God. You see, if you don't have a sense of wonder, it's very difficult to experience and see the greatness of God. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout history, human beings have wondered at the greatness of God. In Exodus 15, 11, look what it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Psalms 33, 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A lot of our praise songs, a lot of religious songs talk about God as a consuming fire because He's awesome and He's holy. And we really need to keep that in our minds, is that God, He's not like us, which is a good thing. But also, 
it can be a terrible thing. Famous pastor, Jonathan Edwards, great revivalist, preached a sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because God requires things of us and God calls on justice. God is, is greater and He's bigger. He loves us. And His love is tremendously great. But we have to recognize that He is not just like us. He's, a God, he's God, the God over us. And we are under Him. I want to ask you this morning, as I've been thinking myself, you know, am I in wonder at the greatness of God? Like when you see a sunrise which is extremely ordinary in the sense that it happens every day. When you see the birth of a child, when you see the routine things of life, do you see the ordinary or are you able in wonder to see beyond that to the extraordinary, to the beauty, the consistency, the regularity, the certainty, all the things that wonder brings to us about God. When we look at just the concept of infinity, that you can't even grasp it, are you in wonder of the greatness of God or have you bought into the world's philosophy that says if you can just learn enough, you can become a God? You can become like God because we are created in the image of God. And we're going to talk about some of that in a minute. But, but being created in the image of God is by no means saying that we are God and that we are in God and that all is God. No, no, no. That's not it at all. We have to have wonder at the greatness of God. Now, Isaiah continues on. And he says, when he experiences the greatness of God, usually there's a very universal response. Isaiah experiences it, and so many others have. He says, when he sees this, this picture of God, and he recognizes the greatness of God, all right, what it did is that it immediately put himself into a perspective that he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa is me. I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So he, he sees and he comprehends the greatness of God, and what does it do? As a result of seeing the greatness of God, this, this sense of wonder brings him to an awareness of the sinfulness of man himself. And this is what happens to us when we recognize the greatness of God, is that we're painfully and authentically aware of our own sinfulness, the sinfulness of humanity. Psalms 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. From the beginning, steeped in sin. Romans 3.23, many of us have heard, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, you can't be in a right perspective on God's greatness and not be aware of your own sinfulness. Another one of the heresies that we see in the modern world is that you can become not just like God, but that, that you're really not that bad. You're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. Guess what? It's not true. 
Now, in some sense, we're not to beat ourselves up and we're not to be shameful, and we're going to talk about that, but don't buy into the reality that you're not a sinful creature. You're sinful at birth. You're sinful by choice, and so am I, and this is the reality. And when we're honest, we know this because we, we don't think right. We don't do right. We don't feel right. And sometimes we know what's right and we don't do that. So, so this is the reality. And so when we beget the correct perspective on the greatness of God, we become more aware of our sinfulness. As we grow closer to God, the more we recognize that our motives may not be pure, that our intentions may not be what they should be, and that we can even cause ourselves to stumble Isaiah sees that. And when we come into the presence of God's greatness, we become aware of our sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what conviction is all about. Whenever you are convicted of your sin, many people um, describe their experiences. I describe mine as a, you know, I grew up in church. I was a, you know, a good kid. I mean, I didn't say I was a bad kid. I mean, like the goodest kid as any kid, but I was still a sinner. And, you know, I didn't, have, didn't necessarily think of myself like that. I heard that. But I remember when I was 12 years old that I, I, I really came to the awareness. Like, it wasn't just like sin. Oh, I mean, I'm, you know, lie, cheat, steal, whatever. Blah, blah. I kind of thought of sin as this distant concept. And then I realized, what that, and it was, a, it was a, I couldn't even tell you a single song they did, but it was at this concert that this group sang. And it was, it was I became aware. Like, I was really a sinner. My whole nature was to do what I wanted to do, not what God wanted to do. And in that awareness is whenever I was able to come to the next step. If you've never come to that awareness that you really are a sinner, I would encourage you to pursue that path to see and to find an answer to that question. Am I truly aware of my own sinfulness? If you're not, Guess what? It's very difficult to move forward. I was talking with someone earlier. And if you can't be honest with yourself, you're pretty much stuck. You really can't go forward until you're honest with yourself. And this is one of those self-awareness questions. Do you truly understand your own sinfulness and your own brokenness? See, the tendency is to do what? It's very easy to look at the failures of others. Because when you look at them, you're bound to find that you're not that bad. Because every single person in here is going to look good compared to somebody. But guess what? When you compare you to the person who got on that cross, you're going to, the stock's going down. You know what I'm saying? So it's not in comparing to other people. It's comparing to who God wants you to be. And in that comparison, you recognize how sinful you are and your need for what Isaiah experiences in verses 6 and 7. It says, then one of the seraphim, he says, man, whoa, what am I going to do? He, he, he's worried about himself because he realizes he's in the presence of pure holiness, God's holy self in the throne room. He says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So in this experience right here, Isaiah receives the forgiveness from God. 
and we're introduced to this concept here of atonement. And ultimately, we know if we follow through that process in the New Testament and all the thing that's developed, that's why Jesus came. And so this, this sense of, of wonder will help us to see our need for the forgiveness of Jesus. Now, Jesus is God. And this is the whole point of the revelation of the Scriptures. And so we're not making an un a jump here. Jesus is the manifestation of God. And so in this experience, we're looking for the forgiveness of Jesus throughout the Scriptures. There are many, many passages, just a few of them. The next day, remember John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he sees Jesus coming to him. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, forgiveness is what you have to have because of your sinfulness. You can't erase your debt. You can't erase your sins on your own. Someone has to forgive you of those sins. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when we have baptism, we talk about baptism, we quote the passage that says to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. You see, you have to be forgiven to be made right with God. And if you don't want to be forgiven, then you aren't aware of your own sinfulness. And many people today think they can earn it. They think they can get there. They think they can change. They can self-help. They can do all of that. But see, even if, well, all those things are really positive things and they can make the world a better place and they are worthy, admirable goals. They forget the one most important thing is that every single human being's sin is an affront to a holy God. And that has to be made right through the forgiveness that offers to us in Jesus. Now I want to say this because this is a really good time in discussing the whole ancient path concept is that just because something is the old way doesn't necessarily make it the right way. All right? Some people get confused, so don't hear that we're talking about, oh, the ancient past, the old ways. Just because it's an old way doesn't make it the right way. There are plenty of old ways that were wrong ways. And sometimes we're trying to grow into the best way and the right way, and we see that even in our experience with God and His forgiveness. And it's something that I think is, helps us to understand the concept of sacrifice and what we see in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 30, you remember whenever before Jesus, these people were experiencing forgiveness through the, through the sacrificial system. Ultimately, it's all through Jesus because God's not limited by time and space. But we know that their expression is what? And Aaron shall make atonement of its horn, its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So their religious expression of God's forgiveness and atonement is coming through this sacrificial system. When Jesus comes, that changes. All right? And so we see that or a description of that in Hebrews chapter 7. The writer says, He, he being Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So the old way had a purpose. It had a plan. God used it. He revealed it to his people as part of redemption's plan. But guess what? 
That wasn't the way it was to always be. That way changed when Jesus comes. Now we have a more perfect revelation of what God wants to do and how he wants us to live. And so as a result, the old way of killing animals and doing all that stuff is not what he's after. No, you don't need to do all that. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the sacrificial lamb and he died once and for all when he offered himself up. And so I, I say that because in a world that's changing, in a world that has so much uncertainty and people are looking, there's a tendency to sometimes try to gravitate and grab back to an old way that may not be right. And we don't want that. We want to get to the right ways. And there are plenty of old ancient ways that are right, but we just go ahead and let some of the other ones go and we don't have to worry about that. How many people are stuck holding on to traditions <laughs> that are keeping them from becoming who God wants them to be? Worried about things that may have had a purpose at some point in history, but today it's, it's irrelevant. It's just a preference. No, we're not hanging on to old ways because they're old. We're trying to grab on to the ancient ways that are going to lead us to God and focus on what those are. Now, as we contemplate this idea of forgiveness, ask ourselves this. Am I in wonder of Christ's forgiveness? You know how I really embrace the wonder of Christ's forgiveness? Is when I think about the mistakes that I make over and over that I sincerely don't want to do and then I do it. Sometimes I just snub my nose up at God and I do it anyway. And guess what? Every time I sincerely come back, what did he do? He forgave me. You, you can't do that. We got a limit, most of us, right? If somebody's just going to keep doing it, what do we want them to do? We want them to suffer. It's very difficult for us to have the kind of forgiveness that Christ offers us. And we have to do it. What Peter asked Jesus, how many times did I forgive my neighbor? What did he say? Seven times 70, which basically means every time. was well, hard. You don't think that's hard. Just let somebody that you care about do something to you a few times over and over and over again and just see how quick you'll write it off. Now, I'm not talking about just letting them keep doing it because that's not what forgiveness is. You know, I, you know what I think about that. But do we really forgive them? And I'm in wonder of Christ's forgiveness when I look at my own life. And I think, man, how does he continue to use somebody like me? Why would he want to do that? Why does he give me a fresh start every time when I keep screwing up? Why does God want and give me a fresh start and throw my sins as far as the east is from the west, no matter how many mistakes I make? Man, because his forgiveness is just beyond comprehension. And that forgiveness that Isaiah experienced whenever he experiences atonement from, Christ, from, from God there at that moment leads him to something that really should inspire us and be part of our experience whenever we are forgiven. All right, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, now, so, so the, the seraphim, the holy being, comes over in the vision and he takes the hot coals, which is, has all kind of ceremonial significance and things like that, touches his lips and atones for his unclean lips and his sin, all the things he said or whatever. And so then 
He hears the voice of the Lord. Now, the interesting thing here is what do you, the implication, Isaiah probably expects some sort of judgment, some sort of condemnation, some sort of explanation. Notice what the voice of the Lord says to Isaiah. Not, it's about time you got here. It's about time you accepted this. Are you truly thankful? Anything that could have been said, what does he say? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here I am. Isaiah responds, send me. Look, if there's anything that an awareness of the forgiveness of God should help us to see, it's the significance of following or the significance of a true follower. Man, that's what God wants, is someone who obeys. God is looking for us to obey Him, and we see that those who follow Him, Isaiah becomes this major prophet who impacts not only a nation, but his, his, God's working in his life has done what? It, it's recorded for us in the Scriptures. People have been reading it and sharing it for generations. So God wanted him to do something, and his following of God was very significant. And that's the case that we see all around. Look at just some of these passages from the New Testament. I love this story whenever um, Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry in Luke 5. He comes upon his disciples who are definitely an unlikely bunch. Certainly wouldn't be the who's who of the people that you would use to choose if you're going to save the world. But he comes up on these fishermen, he says, and he brought their boats to the land. They left everything and they did what? They followed him because he said, follow me. And they left and followed him. Luke 9, 23, he's teaching and he says, if anyone comes after me, what does he have to do? Deny himself, take up his cross daily and what? Follow me. In John 10, 27, he's preaching and he says, look, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they do what? They follow me. You see, followers are very, very significant. Isaiah was a follower. He said, here am I, Lord, send me. Which basically says, you tell me what I need to do and that's what I'm going to do. You see, when you experience the authentic forgiveness of Jesus, the only appropriate response is here I am, send me. Any other response is indicative of the fact that you do not understand really what he did for you because he took all of your sin and your brokenness and he washed it as the song says what? White as snow. And so you want to praise the name of the one. You want to know what do I do, where do I go, how do I serve. And in your serving and following him, significant things can happen. Now, I got a little something I want to challenge you with, if, <clears throat> a little homework, if you will. And this is, I don't know if there's anything special about this, but I was just going through a little list of some of the significant followers of Jesus that I've read about. And so I've got their names up here because what I want you to do is I want you to jot these down or maybe just one or two of them. And remember, and if you want to be encouraged, all right, go and read about some of these folks. But there's seven people here, and this, there's, there's countless numbers of others. But you hear me say we don't need as Christians to concede that, you know, you, you, the modern narrative is that, that Christians aren't helping in the world or that Christians are all hypocrites, that things, you know, look, there's always been people, humans are sinners, but the world is a better place because of Christ and his followers. There are some significant people. William Tyndale, he was an English Bible scholar, actually was 
killed because of his faith. He was the one who really kind of helped get the word of God into print for the common person. George Whitfield, a preacher. Interesting story if you've ever heard of George Whitfield. You ought to go read about him. He was a short guy. They say he was an Englishman. He had cross eyes, but he had a thundering voice. Preached over 70,000 sermons to 10 million people. Many people came to Christ. Very seldom would they even let him into the church to preach. He was too unorthodox. He, wasn't, he didn't fit what they wanted, but yet God used him. William Wilberforce, devoted Christian who really helped end the slave trade. Michael Faraday, he was a scientist who did a lot of things to help um, in the development of electricity and, and, and induction, different things like that. One that you may not have heard, Frances Willard. She was a very devoted Christian lady who really helped women's rights all over the world. Now, not this crazy women's rights stuff we see today where people are just out of control and not wanting to be right in God's eyes. But, but look, she was very instrumental in that. Christian Fuhrer, who was a pastor in East Germany whenever, before the wall fell. Fantastic story. You ought to read about this guy. He started this movement. He was a Lutheran pastor. Who, who started these prayer meetings, had thousands and thousands of people praying quietly, ultimately that led behind the scenes to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, of course, Billy Graham, so many of you have heard of him. So, look, here's my challenge to you. Just take one or two of those and then go read about them. Read their backstory. And what you'll find is none of them were these important people. They didn't come from important high stock. They didn't have money. They didn't have esteem class. But guess what? What they had was a devotion to Jesus Christ. And because of that devotion and their commitment to him, God turned their life into a situation where very significant things happened that changed the world. And so I ask myself, as I ask you today, am I living a significant life as a follower of Jesus? Now, you may not know the significance of everything that you do today because oftentimes it will manifest later. But are we striving at whatever stage in your life you're in to live a significant life for God? Maybe you're retired. So your life is at a different stage in a different season. You can do some significant things for God. I think oftentimes about Claude, and he and I share about all the things that he does when he's helping some, oh, some widows, people from his neighborhood, makes a run to the grocery store, helps them for the, do this, do that. Now, you, you might could say, oh, Mr., how old are you, Claude? 85, so he's 85 years old. He's been in church. Um, he lost his wife. He walks with a cane. Poor old Claude, he ought to give up. Come on now. That's not Claude. Claude's doing what? Claude is using all the gifts that he has to be as significant as he can in the world that he lives in. And so many others are like that. What in, in your world, are you living a significant life as a follower of Jesus, or are you just kind of plodding through? You know the answer. I suspect that every one of us, if we're honest, could say, I could probably realign a few things. I could probably adjust a few of my activities, my expenditures, my energies to make my life more significant than it has been, if we're honest. What I want to encourage us to do, as I have really contemplated, how do I do that? 
how do I make my life more significant as a follower of Jesus? For those of us who've been baptized and who follow Jesus, He wants to use us in significant ways. Now look, if you've never made a decision to follow Christ, the most significant thing you could do is to fall on your knees and ask God to forgive you for your sinfulness, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can live in a right relationship with Him and then begin a path towards significance. This would be a fantastic thing to do. But for those who have done that, how do we in this broken world live more significant lives trying to follow the ancient, correct, biblical path that has, God has for us? And one of it, in conclusion, really is to get back to a sense of wonder. You know, and this sense of wonder will help us recognize the greatness of God, the sinfulness of man, the forgiveness of Jesus, and the significance of his followers which is what each of us who have placed our faith in Christ are, followers of Jesus. Followers means there's what? There's a leader. See, we want to be our own leader. Now, we should have leadership qualities, and we should be leaders, but we're secondary to the leader, who is Jesus Christ, who died on that cross. And every Sunday... As a reminder, we take a few moments and we partake of these elements that represent his body and his blood. First and foremost, because he asked us to. In the scriptures, it says, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. But I think that the point behind it is that's a reminder to us all that we follow not a leader who rules over us with an iron fist or who's a dictator or even anything other than a savior who's willing to do everything for us, wants to work with us, and has made provision for us that when we mess up, we can be okay and we can be forgiven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. His forgiveness. Help each of us today in light of this great forgiveness to declare with our lives that I'm here, Lord. I'm ready to follow. Send me. Not because of compulsion, but out of love and gratitude for what you did on Calvary's cross.